We're going to uh, start in this session a consideration of some of the other passages uh, that were suggested to me, uh, and we'll follow the format where we kind of do a review and I ask questions at the end, and we'll just, if you want to rapid fire those answers, that would be great, but don't wait for a microphone to come to you. I'll just try to repeat the answers into the uh, mic for the tape. So we want to consider Colossians chapter 2 now. Objectives in studying this chapter. First of all, to see the relation between understanding the mystery of God and having a strong assurance of our salvation. <clears throat> Secondly, to appreciate how baptism serves as our spiritual circumcision and that it is a work of God which is performed not of man. And third, to understand how Christ brought an end to the old law by his death on the cross. To summarize this book and looking at this chapter, Paul reveals his great concern for the brethren at Colossae and others that he's not encountered by expressing his desire that their hearts be knit together in love and that they may have the assurance that comes from understanding the mystery of God as revealed through Christ. He rejoices in their good order, in their steadfastness, and he encourages them to be firmly established in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving. Looking at the first seven verses of our chapter there. Paul uses the word beware throughout. The word beware in verse 8 summarizes the rest of the chapter. He warns them of the dangers of what, of what we might call the Colossian heresy. These dangers include being cheated through the philosophy and vain deceit of men, being defrauded of their reward by those who appeal to false humility, the worship of angels, false visions, and strict regulations according to the commandments and doctrines of men which really have no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In Christ we are made complete. We have undergone a circumcision not made with hands in which God has made us alive together with Christ. And since Christ has also nailed to the cross the handwriting of requirements that was against us and taken, us, taken it out of the way, no one can judge us regarding religious observance. Uh, th those things were only a shadow pointing to the true substance of Christ. That's the tenor of what he says in verses 8 through 23 of Colossians chapter 2. So... Paul has great solicitude that he expresses in the first seven verses. He has great concern for them in verses 1, 2, and 3. A great conflict within him for those in Colossae and also in Laodicea. Those especially in the latter part of verse 1 who have not seen him in person, who have not seen him in the flesh. So his desire is that their hearts be knit together in love and that they attain the full riches of understanding. Second part of verse 2. And the first part of verse 2 there. Third part of verse 2, he talks about this knowledge of the mystery of God. And he speaks of the Father and Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 3. He expresses his reason for 
his concern. He doesn't want anyone to deceive them with persuasive words. He's absent in the flesh, but he is present with them in the spirit, first part of verse 5, and he rejoices to see their good order, second part of verse 5, and the steadfastness of their faith, the latter part of verse 5. He exhorts them to be firmly established in Christ in verses 6 and 7. And although they have received Christ, they need to walk in Christ, was what he says in verse 6. Rooted and built up in him, first part of verse 7. Established in the faith, again verse 7. And then finally, as they were taught, abounding with thanksgiving, as he concludes verse 7. Then he speaks of this heresy, this Colossian heresy in verses 8 through 23. And he warns them about this. Warning against philosophy. The dangers of being cheated by philosophy or the imaginations and intellectual ponderings of men. Don't be fooled by that emptiness. According to the traditions of men, second part of verse 8, according to the basic principles of the world, uh, latter part or middle part of verse 8, not according to Christ, as he concludes verse 8. Because in Christ, verses 9 and 10, all of the fullness of God dwells bodily. You are complete in him, he says, who is head over all principalities and powers. In verses 11 through 17, he warns uh, more precisely against the Judaistic type of ceremonialism. And this is where he says, In Christ you have a circumcision made without hands. A putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, been buried with him in baptism, in which you are raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. About the burial there with regard to baptism, there's another good it is written response when you're talking to people about baptism. Because we don't take a corpse and just lay it out here on top of the dirt and sprinkle a few particles over the top of them. No, a burial is a burial. You are made alive in Christ and the handwriting of requirements that was against us has been taken away at the cross. Verses 13 through 15. Dead in sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive, verse 13. He has forgiven you all your trespasses, verse 13. He has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, verse 14. That was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He has disarmed principalities and powers, having made a public spectacle of them. Another time where he uses that that analogy that we spoke of yesterday, triumphing over them in it, the latter part of verse 15. So, he tells them, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or festivals or Sabbath days. The Sabbath came up in some conversation and we hope to address that as we go in this uh, second hour here a little bit. <clears throat> he also warns against angel worship. Verses 18 and 19. And he says, Don't let anyone defraud you of your reward in the first part of verse 18 by taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels. The second part of verse 18. 
by intruding into things not seen, vainly puffed up by fleshly minds, the latter part of verse 18. Such people do not hold fast to Christ as the head, verse 19, from whom all the body grows, nourished and knit together by various elements with increase from God. Then he warns against asceticism there in 20 through 23. Human ordinances that are made up a form of false humility. There is no need to submit to these ordinances, he says in 20 and 22. For you have died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. Verse 20. Therefore do not be subject yourselves to these kinds of regulations, such as do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Verse 21. They only concern things which perish with the using, verse 22, which are according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Such practices are of no value, he says in verse 30, uh, 23. They may have an appearance of wisdom in their self-imposed religion, their false humility, their neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh, as he concludes verse 23 there. There were two extreme doctrines which impacted the early church, and they, they grew out of the false doctrine called Gnosticism. Uh, from the uh, Greek gnosis for to know, uh, John spoke of that a little bit in his uh, presentations yesterday. Uh, the one extreme, I'll just read one re uh, reference to that in Revelation 2.24. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 2, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Now that phrasing, the deep things of Satan, is the, it's coming from the idea, well, in Gnosticism, everything material is inherently evil. In, in this uh, doctrine, that as it comes into the uh, interpretation via Christianity, they come up with this thing that says that basically this is all a big cosmic mistake. This wasn't supposed to happen. This whole universe, this earth, us, everything material, is just a big mistake. And uh, as a consequence of that, then everything material is, is evil. Well, one of the approaches to that is, well, then it doesn't matter what we do in our body. Let's just do everything. Let's just know the depths of Satan. One of the doctrines that we'd read about in Revelation, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and there's a reference to the woman Jezebel, that name being used symbolically. I believe the name Nicolaitan is being used symbolically as well. But it's all about, in order to relate to people who are having problems, addictions, well... Plunge in. Jump in. Find out what that's like. Then you'll be able to talk to them as an authority. Well, of course, you know what happens when that is the philosophy being followed. In other words, everything that you do, just do whatever because it doesn't matter. This isn't really real anyway, is the idea. Well, the, the other side of this coin seems to have been affecting the brethren at Colossae, this idea of abstaining, the ascetic uh, approach. Two very terrible false doctrines from the parent false doctrine called Gnosticism 
a doctrine that taught that everything material was inherently evil, a doctrine that denied the truth of Christ's real bodily presence on the earth and therefore also denied the truth of his crucifixion and his resurrection. Incidentally, just remembered about the Muslim thing. <clears throat> Do you know their doctrine on, on the crucifixion of Christ? Anyone? Hmm? They basically say that he just fainted and they secretly whisked him away and that Judas was put up on the cross in his place. So, again, doctrine, something that is a core understanding of, of our belief system, they just blow it away with their false doctrine. All right, review questions for Colossians chapter 2. What are the main points of this chapter? Looking at verses 1 through 7. We have Paul's solicitude, Paul's concerns for them in verses 1 through 7. In 8 through 23, he refers to the Colossian heresy, the particular false doctrines that were plaguing them. What was Paul's strong desire for those he had not seen that he expresses in verses 1 and 2? that they love one another, their hearts be knit together in love, that they be richly blessed by the assurance that comes from an understanding and a knowledge of the mystery of God. Looking at verse 3, what is hidden in Christ? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So when Satan lied to Eve and deceived her, trying to get her to think that God was keeping her from knowing things. Wouldn't you like to be as smart as God? Paul is saying everything, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. So we must know Christ. Looking at verse 5, what, did, what had Paul seen in the Colossians that caused him to rejoice? Their good order, their steadfastness. <clears throat> How were the Colossians to walk in Christ? Looking at verses 6 and 7. The way they received him. <clears throat> Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, a faith abounding with thanksgiving. Now he warns of some things, three things, that might be used to cheat us in verse 8. What are those three things? Philosophy and empty deceit are grouped together. Human traditions or traditions of men and basic principles of the world. Thank you. Looking at verse 9, what is said about Jesus in relation to the Godhead? Fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. Looking at verse 10, what is our condition in Christ? We are complete in him. Verse 11, what sort of circumcision have we had in Christ? Not made with hands. The, uh, essentially, looking at verses 12 and 13, baptism, he associates this work in baptism. We are buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ. We are made alive together with Christ. God who raised 
Jesus from the dead is performing this work, not man, and that is our spiritual circumcision. That's the equation that he makes. Looking at verse 14, what did Christ take out of the way, having nailed it to the cross? The handwriting of requirements, the written ordinances. Looking at 16, through 16 and 17, in what things should we not let others judge us? Eating and drinking, food and drink, what else? Religious festivals, new moons, Sabbaths. Looking at verse 18, in what ways might people seek to defraud us? False humility, worship of angels, and appeals to things not really seen. Looking at verse 21, what sort of basic principles of the world might others try to regulate upon us? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. And what is the truth about these traditions of men as he speaks in 22 and 23? They have an appearance of wisdom, but they're, they, they're of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. All right, we'll pause here briefly if you have any comment based on that overview of Colossians chapter 2, and then we'll move on into some looks at uh, Ephesians. We've got one in the front and one in the back. Uh, two things, Steve, that uh, I like in this chapter especially. It's interesting to note in verse 11 that this was the first heresy in the church, uh -huh. was to take a commandment of God from the law of Moses and then bind it in the under the new covenant. It's a very clever approach because it was something God did require at one time, but now it's no longer binding, and it caused a lot of trouble in the church. Uh -huh. And the, the second thing is this basic point that he's making throughout the chapter that the reason we don't need these other things is because we are dead with Christ. We Christ died, took the law with him. So if we want to be where he's at, righteous, mm -hmm. we have to go with him. We have to be dead. And if we're dead, if we continue in Christ the way we received him, which was to die, be buried in baptism, if we continue that way, then we no longer need any of these other things, which mm -hmm. are very attractive if we don't have all these treasures that are in Christ. Mm -hmm. Very good. Yeah, the, the poor Gentiles were always um, belittled and berated by, by the Jews, and then it gets to be a point where they, they think it would be neat to be like their, their big brothers and do the things. Yeah. And that's going on today. Seder suppers, Sabbath observances. Yeah. Okay, Jeremy, was it? Yeah, Jeremy Morris. Uh, I like the last half of this, last couple of verses in uh, Colossians 2. Um, I, I think we really need to, to personalize this more than what we do sometimes. Here I think we, we look at the Jews and, and all the things that they did. Don't do this, don't do that, don't mm -hmm. eat this, don't touch that. Um, and it makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you've checked off this list of, of all these accomplishments. And I feel that sometimes we make that exact same mistake. 
that, that we look at our lives and we say we need to deny our lives of these things. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't go to this place. Don't watch that. And the warning in verse 23 is they have no value in what's most important. And that is against the indulgence of the flesh. That there's a deeper problem that has to be addressed that wasn't addressed by the Jews. It was the problem of the heart. Yes. And if we just approach our spiritual life by denying certain things, we are not solving the problem. We are not dealing with the, the problem of our heart. And, you know, yes, those things are going to come to pass. You get Christ in your heart and you do what chapter 3 says to set your affections on things above then those other things are going to take care of themselves. But don't approach the problem backwards. Deal with the heart first, mm -hmm. and then those other issues will take care of themselves. Yeah. Be like Ezra, in Ezra 7 and 10, where he set his mind to know God's law, then to do it, and then to teach it. Yeah. I appreciate that very much, Jeremy. And... Uh, I'll go ahead and forewarn you about what I plan to talk about a little bit on Friday because it ties in with what Jeremy just said. We're going to look at some things pertaining to evangelism and uh, the warning is this. The subject matter that we will consider, it ain't for sissies and it ain't for hypocrites either. Let's be real about this, brothers. Do we have another comment? Okay. Well, it's really a question, Steve. In uh, verse 12, there are many people that want to explain that uh, away by saying it's a spiritual baptism or not a. This is not a wet verse. Some people will say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to know how you handle that kind of a comment. Well, uh, I actually have a much longer list in my notes of various things and some more things on baptism about scriptures to to answer with. We've looked at some of those, but that's what I do, is I just, I go to the scriptures. We had some very good ones that were mentioned in our first session, and uh, uh, actually the, uh, the conversation with uh, Nicodemus and Jesus is a very good place to go to talk about that, because they, they will try to say that there's, that there's two different births that are being talked about there, but the reality is Jesus is only talking about one. And if you let the context speak, it will tell you that. So I just try to direct it to the context, stick in that context, and let the Bible explain it. That's the best you can do. Yeah. But Tom has another. This, this verse really is hard for them to explain if they're trying to get away from baptism because you look at the... Uh, the uh, the grammar there, where was I buried with him? Mm -hmm. I was buried with him in baptism. The a lot of the ones that don't believe in baptism or believe it has any value, they say, well, you were you were crucified when Christ was crucified. Mm -hmm. You were buried when he was buried. But this verse says we were buried with him in baptism, wherein in the same operation we were risen with him through the yeah. faith and the operation of God. It's putting it all at baptism, which then, when you take it with chapter 3, verse 1, if you then be risen with Christ. When were you risen with Christ? You weren't risen with Christ when you said a prayer. 
You weren't risen with Christ when you thought you were risen with him. You were risen with him in baptism. That's mm -hmm. what this says here. So mm -hmm. it's really hard to get away from the, the plain wording there that this happened at some point in our life. It wasn't when Jesus did it. We got the benefits when we were baptized. So yes. It's pretty critical. Right. And when you consider, you know, we talk about the uh, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, being baptized. The only thing on that list that is not something we do is the baptism. And, and, that, and yet that's the thing they say, well, you're say, you teach works because of baptism. Well, no. Jesus said faith is, is a work. Baptism is something that we submit to and it's a work performed by God. Yeah. Very good. Any others? Kimber in the front. Unless there's... <coughs> Uh, in if Colossians 2 and 16, I really like this. It gives me encouragement. Let no one pass judgment on you about these questions, which can happen when you're talking to someone who doesn't view things the same way. Mm -hmm. They let no one, in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions things they've seen, things they've experienced, and then making you doubt. Well, I haven't had a vision. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen something. Mm -hmm. But what you do is you hold fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows. So that's how you keep from drowning. Yeah. Hold on. Mm. All right, thank you. Uh, in the uh, assignment as it was given to me, a big chunk of the book of Hebrews was part of that assignment. Uh, that is, references that were suggested. Uh, so I would like to look at some of the thoughts in the book of Hebrews, but it's going to be, again, kind of a gleaning, kind of an overview approach to this for the sake of time. <clears throat> Starting in chapter 3 of Hebrews... <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 3, having demonstrated Jesus' superiority to prophets and to angels, the author now compares Jesus to Moses in the first six verses of chapter 3 of Hebrews. And this uh, comparison is followed with a reference to Israel's unfaithfulness in the wilderness, which leads to really the second in a series of six warnings in this epistle against departing from the living God by developing an evil heart of unbelief. And he speaks of those things in verses 7 through 19. Some points to ponder when looking at Hebrews chapter 3. First of all, how Jesus compares to Moses. How Jesus compares to Moses. And secondly, the very real danger of departing from the living God. So, we're, we're going, we have it, I hope you have it there open, Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to uh, act as if we've just read through it and have done a nice long discussion in detail of it, but we're going to give ourselves the opportunity to review that discussion. What are the main points of this chapter? Well, looking at verses 1 through 6, what is the subject matter there? 
the superiority of, of Christ over Moses. Then in 7 through 19, we have a warning. A warning against departing. <clears throat> How are the original recipients of this epistle described and how is Jesus described in verse 1? Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, and Jesus, our apostle and high priest. Looking at verses 3 through 6, how are Moses and Jesus compared in this chapter? having to do with God's house, Moses faithful as a servant in the house of God, Jesus faithful as a son over and builder of the house of God, therefore worthy of more glory. Looking at verse 6, whose house are we and under what conditions? If we hold fast, we are of the Son's house. If we hold fast, the confidence and joy of hope firm to the end. Looking at uh, uh, verses 7 through 11, and in that section, Psalm 95 is referenced. What period of Israel's history is referred to there? The wilderness wanderings, uh, 40 some years of wilderness wanderings. Looking at verses 12 through 13, what three things can lead the Christian to fall away? Developing an evil heart of unbelief and the hardening of the hearts through the deceitfulness of sin, departing from the living God. Looking at 12 through 14, what three things can serve as an antidote preventing apostasy? Encouragement. Exhort one another daily, he says. Thank you. What else? I really appreciated what, what John was saying yesterday in his session about uh, challenging our beliefs, not being afraid, and how you know, some people don't want to study this, because they don't want to find out what it says. They don't, they're afraid that it might mean that they're doing wrong, so they don't want to find out. Or they're afraid that some belief that they hold to, or they're going to encounter something in science or, or archaeology or whatever it is. Beware of unbelief. And with that, don't be afraid. It can take the test. And also hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Looking at uh, verses 16 through 18, who rebelled in the wilderness and did not enter the promised land? The ones who did not obey, the ones, and, and belief was linked to that obedience. Verse 19 is where it talks about why they were not permitted to enter because of unbelief. All right, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Since many Israelites failed to enter their Canaan rest because of unbelief, the author says we should fear lest we come short of our 
promised rest. And here we'll talk about the Sabbath a little bit because uh, we have, we have uh, three rests that are talked about and ultimately, as we look at verses 1 through 10, the final rest, the ultimate rest or Sabbath is heaven. Diligence is required and the third of six warnings is given here. It is a warning against disobedience in view of God's living and powerful word there in verses 11 through 13. And I'm sure many of you can quote verse 12 on that score. The word is quick and it is powerful. Positive motivation is then given our great high priest Jesus who enables us to obtain mercy and grace as needed. Verses 14 through 16. Some points to ponder as we look at chapter 4. We have three Sabbaths, that is, three rests. We have the Sabbath rest, as in the Sabbath under the law of Moses. We have the Canaan rest, when they were able to enter into Canaan, which is type of the heavenly rest. So we have three rests mentioned in this section. We have the living and powerful Word of God. We have the privilege of prayer with Jesus as our High Priest interceding for us. What are the main points of this chapter? Well, looking at verses 1 through 10 of chapter 4, it's speaking of that rest, that promised rest, ultimately pointing us to heaven. Verses 11 through 13, it is a warning against disobedience. And verses 14 through 16, it is talking about our great high priest, our apostle and high priest, Jesus. <clears throat> so, verse 1, since we have a promise of rest, why should we fear? Lest we fall short of it. Why did the word fail to profit many Israelites? Verse 2, they didn't have faith in what they heard. Looking at 4 through 10, what three different rests are spoken of in this chapter? And I'll break this down. Verse 4, the Sabbath rest. Verse 8, the Canaan rest. And 9 and 10, the heavenly rest. Uh, someone was asking me during the, uh, during the break, regarding the Sabbath and how it's kind of in vogue now in many denominational churches to try to somehow adopt that former calendar. You know, the Jews, their calendar was, was not a, a solar calendar, it was a lunar calendar, and they went by, uh, when they counted a day, it was sundown, began the day, sundown to sundown was the way they counted. And so a lot of uh, denominational churches are, are using this as a convenient means of gathering on Saturday evening instead of in the morning on, on Sunday, as has been the tradition. And many other customs associated with even maybe outright suggesting that we reinstitute the Sabbath. Well, of course, there is a denomination that has been teaching that all along. But this is a good section to consider along that line when talking to people. We have three rests made mention of, and it is, it is definitely moving in a forward direction. So in other words, our goal is to reach heaven and the purpose of that Sabbath under Moses and the comparison in between there with Canaan is all about getting us to heaven. 
What rest remains for us and what is required of us to enter it in verses 10 and 11? The heavenly rest, diligence is required lest we disobey and fall like many did in Israel. How is the word of God described in this chapter? Someone want to quote verse 12? Thank you. Living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. We have difficulty distinguishing between those two sometimes, but the word can do that. A discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Verse 13, to whom must we give account? The one who sees all. Not to a mere man, but to the one who sees all. Yes, we have the under-shepherds under our chief shepherd that hold us accountable, and we hold them accountable, but we are reporting to the one who sees all. Verses 14 through 16, why should we hold fast our confession? We have Jesus, the Son of God, as our high priest. He sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was tempted, though he was without sin. We can approach God's throne boldly, obtain mercy and grace in time of need. Somebody keeps trying to send me texts up here. It's the trouble with having my phone on for my clock. Well, this, um, yes, we need a mic over here, if we could. Bill Flinger from Somersville, let us, let us hold fast. We have to hang on. As Tillman used to say, keep on keeping on. Mm. That's what we have to do. We have to hang on. It's our, our responsibility, not to anybody else's. Yes. It's our responsibility whether we're going to make it or not. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Any other comments? I do that quick eyes over the crowd, and I know I do that too fast because I might miss your hand. So, all right. Uh, for the sake of time, I mean, we get. I encourage you to do that sort of an approach with uh, scriptures to to outline it like that. That helps you so that you can go back and dig in and really get the the itty bitty bits and and all the little details. But we're gonna we're gonna move ahead now and look at Galatians chapter two for a little bit. Galatians chapter two, and we'll. Consider this for a few minutes. Objectives in studying this chapter. 
First of all, to understand why Paul would refuse to circumcise Titus, but then had Timothy circumcised later, as recorded in Acts chapter 16, verses 1, 2, and 3. To appreciate why it was necessary for Paul to rebuke Peter to his face. And third, to understand why if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ's death was in vain. If we obtain our righteousness by the law of Moses, then why did Christ die? Summary of the chapter. As Paul continues defending his apostleship to the brethren in Galatia. He describes a meeting in Jerusalem 14 years after the one with Peter related in chapter 1. It was prompted by a revelation, and Barnabas and Titus went with him to meet those who were of reputation, the meeting was private, but some false brethren were secretly brought in who sought to demand that Titus, a Gentile, be circumcised. Paul refused, viewing it as an effort to bring them back into bondage, which Christ had set them free from, verses 1 through 5. The result of that meeting was that those who seemed to be something added nothing to Paul, he says. In fact, once they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcised had been given to him, just as the gospel of the circumcised had been given to Peter, and once James and Cephas and John perceived the grace that had been given to Paul, he was extended the right hand of fellowship. They only asked that Paul be mindful of the poor, which he was eager to do, verses 6 through 10. The rest of the chapter describes a confrontation in Antioch between Peter and Paul. Peter, who was visiting at first, was willing to eat with the Gentiles, but then when some came from James out of fear, he withdrew himself, and through his influence, the rest of the Jews, even Barnabas, was carried away into this hypocrisy. This prompted Paul to withstand Peter to his face and to rebuke him in the presence of all. In the course of his rebuke, Paul stressed that we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Otherwise, Christ died in vain. So look, looking at the meeting in Jerusalem, the first ten verses, in private, he says, with those of reputation, verses 1 through 5, occurring 14 years later, accompanied by Barnabas and Titus, he was spurred to go by revelation he communicated the gospel that he had preached. Verse 2. He refused to allow Titus to be circumcised, as some brethren desired who were secretly brought in to the meeting. Verses 3 through 5. Let's just pause there because it's pertinent to our discussion for our topic today. Why did he do that? Why did he say, no, we're not going to have Titus circumcised? But then he said, yes, later, regarding Timothy. Your thoughts. Wait for the mic to find you, and then we'll, yeah. Maybe that would be for the purpose, for the need. Why was this necessary? Okay. Uh, Eric Owens, uh, I think it's a difference between what is... Uh, what is supposedly necessary for salvation versus what is necessary to reach the individual 
that you're trying to reach. And I think that Paul had made a judgment, and rightly so, that uh, Titus would have done nothing but set believers back had he been circumcised, whereas with Timothy, it would have opened doors for people um, as opposed to it having to be done. Timothy did it because it was prudent in the, in the situation which he was going to face. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That, uh, the, that uh, the word is expedient. It was expedient for Timothy to be circumcised since his mother was a Jew. And it, was, it would have solved a lot of problems before they came up to be able to say, yes, I'm circumcised. Whereas in Titus's case, as Eric said, Titus, there was no reason to expect him to be circumcised. There was no reason for him to be circumcised since he is a Gentile. Okay, okay. Thank you. Any other thoughts on that? But, uh, well, the expediency issue, and, and I was waiting. I, Tom answered the question that I was going to ask. Because what is it... What is the difference, the main difference that comes to the fore between Timothy and Titus? Titus was a Gentile. Timothy's mother was a Jew. The way that the Jews uh, reckoned things, they went, and, and I understand they still kind of do this today, they, go, they, they can recognize this through, through your mother's lineage. So in the ideas of the Jews, he was a Jew, and yet... He had not been circumcised. Well, his father was a Greek. Maybe his father put his foot down and said, that's not going to be done to my son. We don't even really know about the father, if he was really even in the picture. But point being, there, there was an expediency, a judgment thing made based on this. But we're, we're looking at, at uh, Galatians. But what is Paul, if we look at what Paul teaches in Romans on this overall topic, if a Gentile says, I think it would be neat to go do those things that the Jews do, to do that, that law. I, I mean, I've never done that. I'm a, I'm a Christian now, and I've learned about these things because we study the Old Testament. I think that would be a great thing to do. Paraphrasing, what does Paul say about that? For the Gentile, what is that? That's a sin. And again, going backwards. So it would be wrong, essentially, for Titus to do it for a number of reasons. Any other thoughts? Uh, Eric again? One more thing in regards to uh, Paul uh, opposing Peter. If there is to be an authority on circumcision, it's going to be Paul. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Peter the fisherman has very little to say in regards to the authority by which anyone could speak concerning circumcision in the law and have Paul do it, uh, an apostle, as he so states himself, uh, born out of due time, uh, I think pretty much the, dis the discussion is over as soon mm -hmm. as Paul weighs in. Mm -hmm. And I love that about Paul where... He brings uh, his former life and his former expertise in the law and the circumcision into play for the good of the body. Thank you. <clears throat> I probably should, I feel compelled to, to say one more thing about this circumcision thing because of what I just said about it would be wrong. Uh, by no means am I advocating that, that in this modern day and age, if 
you have your Gentile son circumcised, that that is a sin. There's a lot more we could discuss on that, and, and Galatians is a good place to go to for that discussion. But that was a covenant between God and the Jews. That was never, for instance, a thing that was given for any uh, health or sanitary reasons, but that has been passed down into our culture as understood in that manner. Therefore, we have that practice, or many have done that. That's just, that's just a physical operation. It's not going to get you or keep you from heaven. That's, that's the thing. All right, uh, looking at verses 6 through 10, Paul speaks of his sanction by James and by Cephas and by John. Those who seemed to be something, reputation made no difference to him, that did not in, add anything to Paul. I like, I like the way he says that there in verse 6. When those of reputation saw that the gospel of the uncircumcised had been committed to Paul, committed by the Holy Spirit, Paul, just as the gospel of the uh, circumcised was committed to Peter, verses 7 and 8. Then James and Cephas and John perceived this grace given to Paul, and they extended the right hand of fellowship, the right hand of fellowship to Paul and to Barnabas. They only asked the poor be remembered, something that Paul was eager to do. Verse 10. Then we have that confrontation, verses 11 through 21, of Peter's hypocrisy. Peter, uh, Paul had to withstand Peter to his face because he would not eat with the Gentiles when the cronies from Jerusalem would come down to Antioch. And this was having a detrimental effect on the church. Even Barnabas, even Barnabas was taken up with this. Barnabas the son of consolation, Bar Barnabas the encourager. He was discouraging people by his action due to this influence of Peter. Paul's rebuke is recorded in verses 14 through 21. Peter's hypocrisy is outlined in verse 14. He himself, though he was Jewish by ethnicity, he lived the rest of the time as if he was a Gentile, yet he was compelling Gentiles to live as Jews. That's hypocrisy. Summary of Paul's rebuke can be found in verses 15 through 21. Jewish Christians realize that they are justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, by which no flesh can be justified. If I seek to be justified by Christ through a means which cannot justify, isn't that making Christ a minister of sin? He says in verse 17, If I rebuild what I cannot justify, that, uh, that has been destroyed, for example, the law, won't I become a transgressor again? Verse 18, through the law, I have died to the law. He says, having been crucified with Christ, Christ now lives in me, and the life that I live, I live to God, is a life of faith in the Son of God. Verses 19 through 20. If righteousness comes through the law, Christ has died in vain, and the grace of God has been set aside. Galatians chapter 3. Objectives to perceive that we are clearly justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. To understand why the law was given, what purpose it served, and how long it was to last. To appreciate the purpose of baptism as it relates to becoming sons of God. 
With the defense of his apostleship behind him, Paul spends the next two chapters in this book defending the gospel he received by revelation. It is a gospel which proclaims justification by faith in Christ, not by keeping the works of the law. As support, Paul begins by providing a personal argument, asking the Galatians to recall how they themselves received the Spirit and from whom they received it, that it came not by the works of the law, but through the hearing of faith. And that should be obvious to them. If they were so begun in the Spirit, why seek to be made perfect by the flesh? Verses 1 through 5. For his next argument, Paul appeals to the Scriptures. First, Genesis 15, verse 6, reveals that Abraham's faith was accounted to him as righteousness. And Genesis 12, 3, foretold that in Abraham all the nations would be blessed. Therefore, those who are of faith are sons of Abraham and blessed along with him, verses 6 through 9. As for the law itself, the scriptures reveal that those who are of the works of the law are under a curse while proclaiming that the just shall live by faith. Deuteronomy 27, 26, Habakkuk 2, 4 are good cross-references there. Christ, however, has redeemed us from the curse of the law and made it possible for the blessings of Abraham to come upon the Gentiles, especially that the promise of the Spirit might be received through faith, verses 10 through 14. And he continues his argument from the Scriptures, and he reminds them of the covenant nature of the promise made to Abraham and that it means that it cannot be broken. Therefore, the promise, along with its inheritance to Abraham and his seed, or Christ, remained firm even when the law came along 430 years later. Verses 15 through 18. What was the purpose of the law then? Paul answers that it was added because of the transgressions until the seed, or Christ, should come. It was not against the promises of God, but because it could not provide life itself, it served the purpose of confining all under sin until the promise of faith, or by faith in Christ, could be given to those who believe. Verses 19 through 22. So the law served to keep them under guard, if you will, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. To put it another way, it was like a tutor leading them to Christ where they would be justified by faith. Once faith had arrived, the tutor was no longer over them. Paul then proceeds with a practical argument to prove that we are justified by faith in Christ, which will be continued on into the fourth chapter. And I'd like to uh, skip to the end. That is... It was suggested that I consider chapter 5 as well. So let's, let's do a quick rundown of chapter 5, and then we're going to have to conclude this session. Galatians chapter 5, objectives. Number one, to see that liberty in Christ does not mean license to do whatever we want. Number two, to understand how one might be separated from Christ and fall from grace. That was one of the false doctrines on my list also, can one fall from grace. Number three, to appreciate the need to walk in the Spirit and the true evidence of one led by the Spirit. 
With verse 1, Paul reaches the climax of this epistle. He is stating what can properly be called the theme of this letter. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He follows with some very dire warnings. The consequences of seeking to be circumcised, seeking to be justified by the law. He then reminds them that the hope of righteousness is for those who through the Spirit eagerly wait with a faith working through love. The next few verses continue with warnings about allowing others to hinder our progress with Paul's harshest words being reserved for those who try to impose circumcision. And he is very blunt or sharp, be that as it may, with his remarks. Yet Paul does not want anyone to think that liberty in Christ means license and encourages them to use their liberty in order to serve one another in love. The twofold benefit of this proper use of liberty then is that one actually fulfills the law and at the same time does not give the flesh an opportunity to cause them to bite and devour one another. Paul then stresses the need for the Christian to walk in the Spirit so as not to fulfill the lust of the flesh. And he describes the enmity between the flesh and the Spirit, explaining why we must bear the fruit of the Spirit instead of practicing the works of the flesh. Not only is there no inheritance in the kingdom of God for those engaging in the works of the flesh, but those in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Having been made alive in the Spirit, they ought to walk in the Spirit so as not to be conceited, provoking and envying one another. And I'm quite confident that that uh, central passage is going to be elaborated on further in that fifth chapter of Galatians. And I appreciate your attention and your comments and the opportunity to share in these things with you. Thank you.